Would you guys turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts? Acts chapter 9, as you're turning there, most of you, you recognize this is a familiar text. A familiar text, and I, and, I, and I want us to look at a familiar text as we consider a conversion. You know, you, you look around a, a crowded room, as I am this morning, and, and a, a myriad of stories, a myriad of experiences, life experiences, uh, good ones, uh, unpleasant ones, um, backgrounds, different religious or, or, or church experience and stories. I mean, the myriad that all of us make up of that and the very different testimonies in the room, every born-again believer here has one thing in common. We were converted. Our life was saved. The Bible says that we were conveyed from the kingdom of darkness into his glorious and marvelous light. And I, I dare say in all of the Bible, and uh, many make the case in all of church history, hardly is there more a well-known or even a more profound conversion than that of Saul of Tarsus. And my hope this morning, just as we did in the nine o'clock service, is that in studying and, and, and piecing together some context of other portions of the New Testament surrounding this man's conversion, my hope is that it would likewise draw our hearts back, fellow church family, to the day God saved us and converted us and how God has done the supernatural, uh, the impossible, had it not been the divine work of the Holy Spirit. And I hope it'd be an encouragement to anyone here who has a prodigal, anyone, he, anyone here who has a unbeliever in their, in their midst, in their household or in their uh, place of employment, that God is the God who is saving souls, just as Pastor George made mention, even in these last days. Look at Acts 9. Let's just read uh, verses 1 through 9. Let's take a look at the account to given to us. I am reading out of the New King James Version. Acts 9, verse 1 reads this way. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and then he fell to the ground. And he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. And then Saul arose from the ground, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Would you guys pray with me this morning? Father, we have worshipped you with our song. We've lifted praises to you because you truly are the only one worthy. As we now turn our attention to the Holy Scripture, we humbly ask that you would receive this as worship. 
Lord. We've come to draw closer to you today. We've asked, Lord, together that you would minister by your holy word to our hearts, that we would be strengthened, encouraged, further equipped for the work of God. Bless this time, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I have long been personally very intrigued by one area of Paul in the scriptures sharing his testimony. Now, you could make the case that six times Paul will reference this conversion in his writings. Some have made the case even ten times. There are other hints. and It would seem to me that Paul is very... Uh, at times in awe of what God did on the Damascus Road. He looks back and he considers. In fact, I'm going to make the case to you this morning, and I believe there's a great application for us. What took place on the Damascus Road was the motivation, the propulsion of his ministry, gratitude of grace. And in one area that I think this is really summed up, when Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, the end of his ministry, you guys know one of the prison epistles, writing from a, a Roman house arrest. Note takers, and, and please, I'm going to ask, don't turn there. We'll stay tethered to Acts 9. I'm going to give a lot of scriptures as we go through this. But in Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul, writing of his testimony, he says, that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Oh, it is a profound statement. Paul says, if I could just grab hold of when he grabbed hold of me, if I could, and this is in the context where he says, forgetting what is behind, pressing forward to the upward and high call of Jesus Christ. He says, brethren, I don't count myself to have obtained, Paul says, but if I could just lay hold of what happened that day that he laid hold of me. He's saying at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life, brothers and sisters, I am just playing catch up of what God did. The grace and the miracle and the divine conversion that took place, I'm still growing to understand what took place. It is what's propelled this incredible ministry. And it is no different than what God has done in our lives, Christian. Saving us and converting and regenerating our souls, saving us from eternal hell. Saving us unto eternal life using our life, that we wouldn't just have a wasted life here, but a useful, prosperous, fruitful, effective life until we meet him face to face. It has to be the thing that draws and drives us to a further relationship with him. This past weekend, getting the privilege to share with the young adults of this church there at the ranch. My wife and I, so blessed to see nearly 80 young people invest in a long weekend, a holiday weekend, to go and draw closer to the Lord and, and, and sharing and testifying and opening the word with these young people and saying the motivation of our life has to be gratitude. The grace of God. It is the highest form of motivation. It's what the Lord Jesus said to that woman, because she has been forgiven much, she loves much. And we look at this area of Bible. I mean, Saul of Tarsus, one who had formerly been carried captive by the devil. This was what we would call a terrorist to the church, he was the chief persecutor of the church, is going to be apprehended in this text. And I'm confident that few things could have been further from Saul's mind on that road to Damascus than the thought of becoming a Christian. I mean, we're gonna look at the, the detail given, that's not where he thought that day was going to end up. Certainly not where he thought his entire life 
and the trajectory was going to end up. I mean, it tells us in verse 1, threatenings and murder. That's what you call bad breath if you're breathing threatenings and murder. I mean, that's not like proverbial. This guy was quite literally killing people. The scriptures tell us in Acts chapter 7, he consented to the death of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, he was dragging women in prison, uh, excuse me, uh, men and women and children into prison. Uh, he's going to say later in his testimony, I was injurious to the church of God. I mean, so breathing threats and murder is the man who just in a few verses, we're going to get this beautiful and truly mysterious moment where his life is suddenly changed. This context or this concept of conversion, many men have written about it. And I found a couple uh, mighty men of God, you'll recognize these names, but they talk about conversion in just such a simple way. Alan Redpath says, the conversion of a soul is the miracle of a moment. He, he continues that quote, he says, but the sanctification of the man of God is but a lifetime. But it begins in just a miracle, just suddenly going from spiritually bankrupt to spiritually wealthy. God does this thing. He delivers. He saves. It was Charles Spurgeon. He says, conversion is simply a change of masters. No longer being ruled by the devil, the world system, or our flesh. But suddenly we have lordship in our life, a change of masters. C.S. Lewis said it this way. If a conversion makes no improvements in a man's outward actions, then I suspect his conversion was largely imaginary. Not the case with this man, though. I mean, the contrast that takes place with this man, you can literally describe it as unbelievable. Because years are going to go by, and guess what? People are not going to believe he was converted. The apostles, we're going to see in the later chapters of the book of Acts, when Barnabas wants to bring this man up to Jerusalem to meet the apostles, they're thinking, we've heard many things about this guy, we're not buying it. I mean, unbelievable. That's how bad this man was. That, that reminds me of my story. I was the guy that was never going to get it. A heroin addict for years, tried different Christian programs, grew up in the church, overdose, arrest, robbery, thievery, I mean, all of it, to the point where people are saying, he's never going to get it. We know some of these people, don't we? Some of us were those people. God loves saving those people. In fact, we're going to see at the end of our study, in another portion of Paul's uh, epistles, in his sharing of a testimony, we'll turn there at the end of our sermon, Paul's going to use the terminology. He goes, I'm like show and tell. First Timothy chapter one, he goes, God has held me up as a pattern to those who would believe. If, if God can save me, Paul would say, he can save anyone. You know that portion where he says, I'm the chief of sinners. We love this story. And, and, and we should draw on our story, our conversion, or, or maybe as we go through this, the spirit of God would be ministering to your heart and, and provoking have, have you been converted? We're going to look at a man who is profoundly religious. I mean, he was like the most religious guy of religious guys. Going the opposite direction of a relationship with Christ. So God is not into religion. God wants a relationship. And as we look at this, we're going to see all of it. I made mention already, I believe the most famous conversion within the history of the church. Let's consider the resume of this man for a moment. By blood, he's a Jew. 
He says in his own writing in Philippians 3, from the tribe of Benjamin, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, I was a stock of Israel, circumcised the eighth day. I mean, he's like, I, I was a Jewish kid through and through. But by education, Saul was a Greek, trained in what seems to be a household there in the Roman province of Cilicia, Tarsus. His parents had uh, educated him in the Greek language. The, the, you know, the Hellenistic culture was, at the time, the, the, the spoken language. But he wasn't just you know, a uh, Jew by blood. He wasn't just educated as a Greek man, but he was the citizen of Rome. I mean, he had a pretty well-balanced uh, character. This man had a lot of things going for him. We understand as we go through the book of Acts and we get much of his story, five times in the book of Acts, we'll read that his name is connected to the hometown of Tarsus. We'll see in this chapter, verse 11, Acts 9, 11, Arise, Jesus will say to Ananias, inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Later on in chapter 21, the apostle will give testimony before an angry mob in Jerusalem. Acts 21 verse 39, he says, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no small city. So, you know, the story we have of this man as we piece together what's given to us in the scriptures 600 miles north of Jerusalem, that's a long ways. In the area that the Bible refers to as Asia Minor, that's our modern day Turkey. And Asia Minor is you know, obviously a Roman province, a well-to-do city, by no means a small city, he says in his own language. And his parents must have raised him with some sort of uh, affluence. No doubt there was an eloquent family, but obviously a pious, religious, Orthodox Jew family. And the reason we know that is even though he was raised probably up until 12 years old there in Tarsus, after what we call a bar mitzvah, a rite of passage, his parents would have put him on a boat, little Saul, and he would have sailed down to Jerusalem. He would have been raised from 12 and above there at the feet of Gamaliel. It tells us later in his testimony, in Acts 22, Paul says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in Jerusalem at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, was zealous toward God. Guys, Gamaliel, the Bible hints in church history tells us, was the rabbi of rabbis. Gamaliel in the book of Acts is the one that all of the Sanhedrin, that's the Greek word synedrion, the council, that's the supreme court religious system of the day, when they had issues, they all turned to Gamaliel, Acts chapter 5. He grew up at the, rabbi, the feet of the rabbi of rabbis. And so this is a man who has a very great young start, sent down from uh, mom and dad, growing up in Jerusalem. He's going to be the rising star. In that same portion where he later testifies of his previous life in Acts 22, he doesn't just say that I was this Jewish kid with all of the resources available. He also looks back and he says, but I persecuted this way to the death in Acts 22, binding, delivering into prisons both men and women to deliver them in chains and to be punished. So I want us to pause and consider the confusing state of a man. We have a man, as we pick up in Acts 9, who is esteemed in religion. He's the rising star of this religious system. And yet, at the same time as he's esteemed in religion, he's completely estranged from Christ. It's confusing. 
Um, some of us have experienced that confusion before. You know, my testimony, I, I understood religion to a degree. I heard enough Bible. I knew, you know, that our nation at the time, you know, nearly three decades ago was a Christian nation. And I was the guy that even through my rebellion and all my difficult teenage years and into my 20s of addiction, quite literally, I'm the guy like witnessing to my heroin dealer, like talking about Christ as I'm picking up drugs. You know, that's a confusing state. Some of us don't have that story. You know, where I come from in Maine, it's a very Catholic area. You know, French Catholicism from Canada and, you know, Massachusetts and Roman Catholicism. And, and Catholicism has kind of entrenched people in this, you know, dead orthodoxy, this religion. Are there born-again believers in the Catholic Church? Yes. Is it a minority? Yes. It's a very tough rigid religion and people go through a confirmant, they go through an infant, uh, infant baptism and they're done, that's good, I'm, me and the big guy, we're good. It, because religion, it appeals to our, our, our sinful self that we'd rather check off boxes than allow God to cleanse our heart. This man is religious. I mean, he was the most religious guy and yet he is the terrorist, the persecutor of Christ and his church. It's a very confusing state. So you pick up in verse 1, Acts 9, then Saul, notice the word still, right? We're, we're approaching this conversion, but still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. In his writings, he will say in Galatians 1 verse 14, he said, I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation being more exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. In Philippians 3, he says of his old life, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. I mean, that's a, that's a resume, blameless. He said, according to zeal, you wanna know how zealous I was? He goes, I was more zealous than my contemporaries, so much so I persecuted the heresy of the Christian church. In his defense before King Agrippa, Acts 26, to add context to his resume. In Acts 26, verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, all the Jews know, was according to the strictest sect of our religion, the Pharisees. He goes, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. My father was a Pharisee. I mean, very fascinating. This is and was no weekend warrior of religiosity. I mean, what we can understand as we come into this section of Acts chapter 9, he was advanced in his studies, versed in the scriptures, pious in his behavior, devout in his service, disciplined in his worship, esteemed amongst his colleagues, zealous for the things of God. And yet, this man is injurious to the church of God, persecuting the followers of God, and estranged from the Son of God. What a confusing state. A trajectory that could not be further from where he's about to end up. In a miracle, God is going to do something. I dare say, if the Sanhedrin's school of theology had a yearbook, Saul would have been voted least likely to follow Christ. No one ever would have thought what was about to take place is going to take place. Sharing with the young adults this weekend and adding some context to a later portion of Paul's life, I, 
I, I was trying to consider what would it be like in our present world? Let's think of a, a man who has since been killed, but a, a man like Osama bin Laden. I mean, you know, the, the real enemy of the Judeo-Christian free world so to speak, and um, what, what would have happened? I mean, the shockwaves if you know, Osama bin Laden got converted and radically saved. I mean, that'd be powerful, right? I, I, I mean, I'm trying to add that what the scriptures give us concerning this man, he was the terrorist of the church. People are petrified of this man. And no one would have thought what is about to take place is going to take place. And, and it's a fascinating thing as, as we look at what does take place. I, I like how the King James, the Old English, has verse 1, and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, because as of yet, this man finds himself in opposition to Jesus Christ. Do you remember where you were, that, that yet moment, you know, that, that BC moment? I mean, you know, there, there's a, a point, I pray, in our lives where something took place. Our eyes were opened. We were suddenly convicted. I mean, I, I've often pondered Peter's moment. And in Luke chapter 5, you got Peter fishing all night. He hadn't caught anything. He's frustrated. Who wouldn't be, right? All night. And just as he's wrapping up and it says they're you know, cleaning up and mending their nets on the shoreline, Luke gives us way more detail than Matthew does. In Luke chapter 5, he's mending his nets, and all of a sudden he looks up, here comes Jesus and a multitude coming down to the shores. And of all the boats that Jesus could get into, he hops into Peter's boat. Remember, he says, hey, Peter, launch out. And uh, it says when he's done speaking, so, you know, Peter's exhausted and he's tired, He's got enough respect for religion, like, all right, whatever, I'll let this guy use my boat, you know, the, the natural amplification of the water, that, that was well known, and he's being a good, you know, it'd be like someone sitting in church, be like, is this guy done yet? It says when he's done speaking, the Messiah, he spoke. Isn't that fascinating? When he was done speaking, all of a sudden he spoke. Hey, Peter, launch that net onto the other side. Do you guys remember the story? And he says, with all due respect, Carpenter, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything, but at your word, which is a good start, because you said so, I'll do it. Remember the biggest catch of his life. The nets were breaking, signaling to his partners. Now, any fisherman, any, uh, I don't know, anyone who hunts game, anyone who is into the outdoor world, when you get the biggest catch of your life, the reaction that soon follows is not what you'd expect. He suddenly, in Luke chapter 5, he falls down on, the, uh, on his face in the boat and he says, depart from me, I am a sinful man. Something happens. There's, there's this invisible transaction where suddenly he realizes I am in the presence of greatness, I am in the presence of a creator. Something happens that for you and I, even it can be hard to articulate. But we just know we were born again, we were saved. Something happened. And we're approaching this, but the man couldn't be further off track at this point. And so, you know, we're looking at this and we try and consider our story in, do you remember, brothers and sisters, rhetorically, just think, do you remember when you were yet a follower of Jesus Christ? Saul was breathing threatenings and slaughter, threatenings and murder. What, what were you breathing, uh, proverbially? 
What, what was the inhale and exhale of your life? What was the purpose of your life? What was the trajectory of your life? Was it murder and mayhem? Was it bitterness and anger? Was it this you know, gripe against God because of your circumstance? Were you a victim of what, maybe a, a bad parent or a, a relative? I mean, and, and, and I'm not you know, downplaying any of that. But was this the trajectory of your life? And, and you know, maybe it wasn't this murder and rage, but maybe similar to my story, maybe it was more just mayhem and recklessness. I mean, you were just heading towards hell and you didn't care and, and you were, you know, drugs and alcohol and pleasure and maybe, maybe that was some of your stories. Maybe it's more of what we're seeing in our culture today. Maybe it was the breathing, this intoxication of indifference. Like, whatever, I, it seems like that's the culture we're living in today, doesn't it? Paul the Apostle will later say, as the Spirit expressly says, 1 Timothy 4, that in latter times men will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons, and their conscience will be seared with a hot iron. And it doesn't seem like there's just this like callousness of, of the psyche of our American culture right now. I mean, the perversion and the attack on family and the attack on gender. And I mean, the, the things that part of us want to laugh at, like they came up with another gender today. There's another gender that we got to add to the list. There's another letter to the letter alphabet club of the, it's like, it just keeps going and going and going. Part of us want to laugh, but behind it, there are lost souls and deceived souls. We're thinking, what happened? So whatever you were breathing, whatever the loved one that you have in your family was breathing, whatever was happening that was so going contrary to the direction of Christ, well, Saul was in that category. Breathing murder and threats, breathing slaughter against Christ and his followers. And this is where he was when God's going to save him. It's a fascinating thing. This man Saul, completely consumed. He's obsessed with the advancement of a religion. And yet all the while... This is a man who's void of a relationship with God. And he claims to represent a follower of God. He's a, he's a Jewish man. He's devoted to some structure in life, but yet he's never come to the savior of life. And in verse two, he went to the high priest, Saul did. He, he asked letters from him to the synagogue of Damascus so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. All right, we believe, from what we can gather uh, in a chronology, probably Caiaphas is still the high priest. This is a wicked man. Um, so this is an earthly, corrupt man who is giving orders to the bounty hunter Saul. Go get this family. Go, go get these believers. We believe they're up in Damascus. Go find them. Make sure they come and uh, report that they got to answer for what's going on. I mean, Caiaphas has proven to be a killer. This is the group. This is the council that conspired against Christ. So, you know, think about this. And the chief, you know, again, bounty hunter is this man, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, Josephus, the first century historian. Many of you guys know Flavius Josephus, a great extra-biblical resource a Jewish Roman citizen, and he was alive in the first century church. Much of his writings exist today. And Josephus tells us that Damascus, in, in that area 200 miles north of Jerusalem, Josephus tells us there was at least 40 synagogues. So a very big, healthy Jewish community. Uh, any community that had more than 10 adult men had to have a synagogue. And so there was all sorts of believers, and no doubt the Christians fleeing persecution back from chapter 8 of Acts, they went north. And if you've visited Israel, some of the room have, 
If you visited Israel, even today as you go to the Temple Mount, you know, as your tour guide will tell you, the north gate out of the Temple Mount, the Temple Precinct, is the Damascus Gate. It's the road that goes directly north. It's a trade route. It's a pilgrimage route. He's heading due north. He's finding these believers. He gets this uh, summons, so to speak, an arrest order. And the church of God knows this man. The Bible tells us they know this man. They're afraid of this man. If you just looked at the previous chapter in Acts 8, verse 3, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house, hailing men and women into prison. They, they know this guy. If you look at Acts 9, verse 13, Ananias will have to say to the Lord, uh, Lord, I've heard by many of this man, Saul, and the evil he has done to the saints in Jerusalem. Can you picture it? God's like, Ananias, I got a chosen vessel of mine, Saul of Tarsus, go get him. Ananias is like, whoa, time out, God, let me tell you something. You know who you're asking for? Did you say Saul of Tarsus? Everyone knows this guy. This isn't the guy you're asking for, right? I mean, this guy had a reputation that preceded him. And try and imagine as we're approaching this conversion in verse 3, and we're about to, as we approach what's about to take place, what must it be like in the hours, in the days, the weeks, in the months, in the years that will follow in what will be the Apostle Paul's life? Thinking of working for that earthly, corrupt high priest Caiaphas. And yet in that journey, in that you know, commission of this false system, he's going to have this encounter with the high priest, Jesus Christ. The high priest, the mediator, the bridge, the gap, the representative. And uh, very fascinating. You look at verse 3. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus. Suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's a tough task for the Bible teacher. I don't know the tone. And we'll consider that in a moment. I don't know the tone. But think about how suddenly his path is interrupted. Dr. Luke writing the book of Acts. This is our author. So we look here in chapter 9. This is Luke giving us detail of another man's conversion. But Luke tells us, he says, a light from heaven shone around him. Now, we will get Paul's uh, vocabulary. And what's fascinating is it's about 25 years later. Now, I have a hard time remembering two days ago. Right? A week ago. I'm just, details, they evade me quicker than I would like. But, but, you know, 25 years will go by. And in Acts 26, verse 13, you know, the three missionary journeys have already taken place. The churches have been planted. He's now been arrested. He'll be shipped down to Caesarea before he goes to Rome. So in Acts 26, all those years have gone by. In front of Agrippa, Saul of Tarsus will say this, Acts 26, verse 13. He says, it was at midday, O king, along the road. I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun shining around me and those who journeyed with me and when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language. Now it's one thing if the noonday sun up where I'm from in Maine gets overpowered. We have a weaker kind of sun that far in our orbit up there. This is like by the equator, right? You guys know we're in, we're in Israel, we're in Syria, Damascus area. It's noontime, 
And even being noontime in the equator sun, 25 years later, Saul was like, oh, it was way brighter than the sun. And I went, face plant. We all went face plant. Yeah, I mean, think about this. The, the book of Revelation tells us that in the New Jerusalem that there's going to be no need for the sun, for the Son of God himself is the source of light. In the creation account, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first thing we see is the earth was uh, void without form, and God said, let there be light. And then after that, he created the sun. Isn't that fascinating? It tells us in John chapter 8 that Jesus Christ says, I am the light of the world. So you think about this, you know, sudden, knocked off the high horse, face plant on the ground, brighter than any sun he had ever seen, the brilliance of it. And I love what he said in Acts 26. He said, and then God spoke to me in the Hebrew language. Saul, Saul. Now, I, I want to pause on that because I think it's a big deal when we consider our story. The Hebrew language. Remember, this man was trained early in life in the Greek language. Certainly at 12 years old, beginning his religious endeavors, which would send him on a very, very far off trajectory, he became the scholar of Hebrew. He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, according to the law of God written in the Hebrew, blameless. I mean, he's the guy. And how fascinating that is in this, you know, script of scholarly study that is sending him on a, a trajectory so far off the course that God's going to use that language and reveal himself. So like we think of today, we think of those who go to school for eight years, 10 years, 12 years. They, they just, they live to go to school and they get, you know, these degrees and they study science or astrophysicists or, or I don't know, uh, molecular biology or, you know, these people who they study and they study and they study and they study. And so many of them in that, you know, higher academia, they're, they're atheists, they're profound atheists, but as they study and they study and they study to prove there's no God, there are a few who suddenly realize as they study God's science, oh my goodness, there's a creator. And it's written everywhere. I, I recommend, I did in the last service, I'll do it again. This service, Eric Metaxas, a great author. Eric Metaxas recently wrote a book titled, Is Atheism Dead? And Eric Metaxas, really it's a pun or a play on words because the Time Magazine uh, decades ago famously had, Is God Dead? And that was in a point where, you know, a lot of the, what we now call the four horsemen of atheism, these brilliant men, came to be and they said, oh, Christianity's long been proven wrong. The, the idea of creation has long been proven wrong. And, uh, you know, the, the Time Magazine was, is God dead? We've proven it's done. And, you know, now 60 years later, a man like Eric Metaxas, studying and hanging out with brilliant men, says everything we study, I don't care if you look as far as now the, no, the, the new telescopes can take us, or if you look as deep down into the new powerful microscopes can take us, it is so clear that there has to be a creator. And you know, one of my favorite testimonies I've ever heard, in this context of God will meet us and he'll speak to us in the language of our rebellion. And then for me, my language wasn't all that sophisticated. Found myself in a jail cell for a robbery. Found myself broken, surrounded by criminals and thugs because I'd become one. And how God would meet me there. But, you know, I think of a gentleman my wife and I met back in Hawaii. We had served on staff at a church there. And we, we met a guy who had just recently planted a church in Brisbane, Australia. And a, a brilliant man, a young guy, close to my age, 
grew up in the, in the state, uh, excuse me, the nation state of, of India, Hinduism and Buddhism and kind of a mixture and just confused. So by the time he got out of his you know, rearing and upbringing, he was kind of done with that, but came to America and just really excelled in the Ivy League system and then got hired at IBM as some you know, profound engineer position. And, you know, he was living the American dream. But it just so happens he was chasing a young damsel and that girl, born again Christian, said, well, okay, if you're interested, come to this uh, hangout with me, a Bible study. And bringing this man to a Bible study, uh, this man got saved as someone was just going through the book of Exodus. Isn't that fascinating? And, and not just Exodus, it was Exodus chapter 3 where, where God appears to Moses on the burning bush and says, if they ask, just say, I am who I am. Now, I read that even still. I'm a pastor. I'm like, that's a pretty cool statement. On to the next verse. But this man, being brilliant, he got saved. He goes, I am who I am. That's a mathematical genius. Only God could say that. I still can't articulate why it's a mathematical statement. I just know that God met that man that only God, outside of time, could make the statement, I am that I am. God met him in that, in that language of his scholarly math matician mind and saved him to the point where he dropped out of the IBM program and planted a little Calvary chapel in Australia. But doesn't God do that? He meets us in this language. He's the student of Hebrew. He's the student of the law. And God chooses to say, Saul, in the Hebrew language, it's me. What are you doing? Um, it's absolutely fascinating. Now again, we got to deal with this concept of the, the tone. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? What was the tone like? I mean, it's a fascinating thing for us to just try and consider. Here's a man who was so learned, but so lost, scholarly, but on the road, going nowhere, speaks to him in the Hebrew, and it says, Saul, Saul. Now, I suspect, as we look at other portions of Christ speaking to people, like Peter. Peter, he knew Peter was just on the cusp of having to deny him three times. There was going to be a failure. Luke 22, Peter, being spoken to by our Lord, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you, but I've prayed for you. There was tenderness. There was a sobriety to it. We think of Martha, Luke chapter 10, Martha, Martha, one thing is needed. Come, sit at my feet as Mary has chosen. I know the tone in which God spoke to my heart in a place of brokenness. I love how the prophet Isaiah, by the gift of prophecy, by the Holy Spirit, Isaiah at times will allow the Messiah to speak through him, right? 700 plus years before Christ came. In Isaiah chapter 50, as the Messiah speaks through the prophet, Isaiah 50 verse 4, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I should know how to speak a word in season to him who is weary. Anyone ever find themselves in that season where God met you, spoke to you in that season in a place of weariness? Paul writes for us in Romans chapter 2, it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. I don't know the tone. I assume there was a gentleness to it. There was something piercing to it. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, fascinating, you guys know, we look at this and Jesus doesn't say, why are you persecuting my followers? Why are you persecuting my church? Why are you persecuting my apostles, my people? 
my uh, sect the way? Why are you doing that? That's not what happens. Why are you persecuting me? You know, if you're face down in the dirt and you know you're having a real kind of heavy moment here with the creator of the universe, we might kind of squirm around for an excuse. Well, well, hold on. I'm not persecuting you, per se, your followers. You know, but he says, why are you persecuting me? So we have this, you know, New Testament ecclesiology. We understand that the church, you and I, we are known as the body of Christ. Who teaches us that? Paul. Four times, the body of Christ is the church. He learned that here. And that is relevant in today's world because with the information age that we're living in, with the YouTube and the podcast, and every Christian can have their plethora of online pastors and online podcasts. I like this doctrine. I don't like that doctrine. I adhere to this. I don't adhere to that. And what kind of happens in our American culture, and I see it where we pastor there in Maine, is this kind of rogue Christianity, like, you know, me and God are good. In fact, we're really good. I just don't really like, I don't do organized religion. I'm not really into church. As if that was like man's invention, right? Uh, me and Christ are good. I just don't like hanging out with the body of Christ. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Travis, I like you, man. I don't like hanging out with you, but I like you. That'd be a weird statement, right? Now, this is the body of Christ. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Saul, every time you take one of those little ones who are my followers bought with my blood and you drag them and you persecute them, that's with me. And this is going to be such a heavy accusation, I should say an indictment. It's this indictment that leads up to the pardoning. And I think sometimes we forget the indictment before we accept the pardoning. We love the good news of Jesus Christ, but the good news of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ because there's also the bad news. That you and I, we are rogue and renegade human race. Sin has tainted and bitten all of us. And we are in big trouble. Humanity is in big trouble. And if it wasn't for the free gift and the precious blood poured out of Jesus Christ on Calvary's Hill, all of us would be doomed for eternity. The indictment that comes, that's, that's my church you're dealing with, Saul. That's me. And in light of that, we're going to then see him say, Lord... What do you want me to do? We understand the heaviness is quickly weighed out with this man. And it alters the trajectory of his life in such a way that is truly profound. So here's a man. He believed he was serving God by purging out those heretics. He believed he had good intentions. He believed he was doing the proper sense of duty and responsibility and purpose. But you guys know the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. He believed he had a pious and a righteous motivation and God interrupts it. You know, one more thing I'll paint that is a fascinating thing to just, you know, illuminate the contrast of what happens to Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. That man Gamaliel, who I made mention of, this was the guy everyone looked up to. It was Gamaliel when Peter and John, after being born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, they wouldn't shut up. They kept preaching in the temple, preaching in the temple. They'd get arrested, brought before the Sanhedrin. You guys know the term, they'd make executive mandates. Don't preach in the name of Jesus. Then what would happen? They'd go back, preach in the name of Jesus. They'd arrest them again in Acts chapter 4, bring them back. Did you guys not hear the first time? Don't preach in the name of Jesus. They'd say, hey, listen, that's good and all, but whether we listen to you or God, you choose, we're going to listen to God. They go back, they preach in the name of Jesus. The third time they get arrested, they go, time out. Gamaliel, 
what do we do with these guys? They don't care. Remember? And Gamaliel stands up. He's the councilman to the council in Acts chapter 5. And Gamaliel says, I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone, lest you even be found to fight against God. Even Saul of Tarsus is thinking, oh, man, he's getting soft in his old age. And he says, I'll pick up where he left off. It was good, but now the student has come above the teacher. And then he persecutes. He kills Stephen in Acts 7. He's wreaking havoc on the church in Acts 8. He's breathing murder and threats in Acts 9. I mean, you guys get the direction of this man's life? And then suddenly he is confronted and he is face planted with the high priest, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, it's reasonable. He said, Saul does, who are you, Lord? That uh, word Lord gives us a hint. I think he knew something, right? Who? Now we're going to find out later. He was uh, astonished. He was fretful, uh, shaking his voice. He says, who are you, Lord? Now, certainly Saul knows this is of some degree a divine experience. The bright light from heaven will testify of that. The voice in the Hebrew tongue speaking to him, that is clear. But I suspect Saul was not yet sure, or at least he was still a little skeptical. But in verse 5, then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I am Yeshua. Now, you know in the Old Testament, there's at least nine different times. We have, you know, Jehovah, Nisi, Jehovah, Rapha. I mean, all those Jehovahs, you know, God is the healer, God is our provider. I mean, the Jews knew that. Of course, Saul knew that. Y-H-W-H. They had such a reverence, they didn't even fill in all the vowels for us. So you and I are left wondering, is it Y-H-W-H? I mean, they had such a reverence. The, the rabbis of the day, when they did one letter Y, they'd go away, wash their hands, come back and do the letter H, go away, wash their hands, do it again. I mean, the, the, the system of how much reverence they had for even writing what we now call the Tetragrammatron was so profound, but it all pointed to something. I mean, Yehovah, Yahweh. So when you go through the Old Testament that God is our healer, God is our provider, and all of that, and then you come to the New Testament and the angel says to Joseph, you shall name him Yehovah Shua. God is salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. And God in the Hebrew language, Jesus Christ says, I am Yeshua. Can you imagine that, the, just the moment? This man's going to be blinded for three days, no eyesight, and yet more insight than he's ever had. I mean, completely blind, and he is just going through all of the scriptures, just as Jesus did on the road to Emmaus, beginning in Moses, and all the way through the prophets, expounded on the things concerning Christ, right? Can you imagine as, as Saul of Tarsus for three days is about to go, led into a city by the hand, and just thinking, how did I miss that? It was all about him. I mean, totally profound. He says, I am Jesus. Can we agree at this point, the entire religious establishment had tried to convince the world that Jesus was dead? At this point, the Roman guards had been paid off to convince the world, if they don't ask, he's dead. At, at this point, as we look at this, the Sanhedrin had made executive orders and mandates forbidding the preaching of the resurrection because listen, he's dead. I mean, Saul was throwing men and women and children in prison because he was convinced Jesus was dead. And now he's face plants, and the Lord says, it's me. 
Jesus, whom you're persecuting. I mean, you try and imagine, followed up with a statement, not a question, it's a statement, it is hard for you to kick against the goats. Right? It's not, is it hard to kick against Guys, we've all answered that question, haven't we? We know it's hard to kick against the goats. The proverb says the way of the transgressor, it is hard, isn't it? It's wearisome, it's painful. Some of us went on longer loops than others, but we've all, to some degree, we've tasted, we've experienced it. Saul of Tarsus knows it is hard to kick against the goats. Now, this is the ox goat or the cattle goat. It's a tall wooden stick with a pointed end. It's meant to, to drive, right? Uh, just yesterday, my wife and I being at the ranch for that young adults conference, and what a, man, what a beautiful property. It's like this mixture of like Jurassic Park, but like Safari Africa, and you got the, all these, and oh, we've never seen anything like it. And, and uh, uh, Pastor Jose Casas, he's crazy, by the way. Do you guys know that? <laughs> I love that brother. He's, uh, he's got a heart pure of gold, but man, that, he took us on a little tour of the safari, and we had such a good time, and we're seeing all these animals, and, and at one point, uh, Casas says, hey, you guys want to see the dogs of the ranch? It's just me and my wife. And we're like, yeah, yeah, sure. And so he starts doing this kind of barking thing out the window, and, and it, but it wasn't the dogs that came, it was the, all the cattle. I mean, they came running in from 200 yards, 100 yards, 50 yards. I mean, like 50 cattle, massive cattle came in. I got the whole thing on film. I'm just like, this is crazy. And they just kind of surrounded and cost us of court. He gets out and kind of rolls in the grass with them and does his thing. And I'm just thinking, this is what's going on here. But you, you look at the size of these cattle and, and you realize, I mean, these are big beasts of burden. They got to be driven. God says it's hard to be driven. Saul has been wrestling in such stubbornness and what blesses my heart, and I hope it blesses your heart, all of heaven was aware of it, right? Uh, heaven was aware when you and I wrestled against heaven. Christian, heaven is aware when your prodigal is wrestling against heaven right now. Aware, perfectly aware. And uh, this, this statement as Saul, who had wrestled against the testimony of Stephen, Remember Acts 7, you know, brighter men than me have pointed out that what takes place in Acts 7 while he was still a rebel of, of God's kingdom? Saul, who was on the Sanhedrin, listening to the testimony of that man. It was Saul who consented to the death of that man. You remember Stephen's outline of Acts chapter 7, that history lesson is basically making one point, that God always sends a deliverer the first time and he's rejected, whether it's Joseph or Moses, but the second time he's received, as it was with Joseph and Moses, right? And so Stephen is making this whole point that likewise, Jesus Christ is sent the first time, but with lawless hands, you crucified him. But the second time he comes back, he'll be received. I mean, that was imprinted in the brain of Saul of Tarsus. Even though he was rabid and he consented and he killed that man, Paul will pick up where Stephen left off through the rest of his ministry expounding on such truths. But at that time, he rebelled against the testimony of Stephen. He wrestled against the testimony of Peter and John when they testified before the Sanhedrin. There's a good reason to believe that he could have wrestled against the eyewitness ministry of Jesus Christ. Was Saul there in the visits that Jesus in his earthly ministry came to Jerusalem? I mean, this context of, you know, kicking against the goads, the Bible tells us when Jesus had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. 
He poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. Maybe it was a personal statement. Maybe to draw the attention a little bit more to this man Saul, who's now face-planted. Maybe he took a whoosh as he was being driven out with the oxen out of the temple. It's hard to kick against the goes, Saul. But Saul's response as we begin to close up, and this is really, I think, the meat for you and I, Christian. In light of what God has done, in verse 6, so he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Remember, we began uh, Philippians 3. He said that I may just apprehend that which was first apprehending me. If I could just fully grasp and understand what took place that day. It would therefore change the direction of our life. It would change the motivation of our life. And we would ask the question, Lord, what do you want me to do? In light of who you are, in light of the indictment that was against me, in light of my transgression before a high and holy king, in light of the fact that you wiped that slate clean, you saved me, you brought me from the kingdom of darkness into the glorious light because of that, Lord, it's reasonable. What, what do you want me to do? And, and foolish questions go forth, humanity towards God. You know, God, what are you doing down here? Why'd you let this happen? When will you straighten this all out? Who do you think you are? When we meet, we're going to have some big, you know, questions back and forth. I mean, people say foolish stuff. But a legitimate question is, God, what do you want me to do? And we're going to find out there's no, like, five-year plan given. Isn't that frustrating, Christian? There's no, like, PDF of do this step and then this step and this. They just have to go into the city. It'll be told. One step at a time. But too many Christians, they stumble at this point, I believe. They get saved, there's something miraculous, the conversion takes place, an exodus, a greater exodus than what happened in the Old Testament. When Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, according to what Matthew's Gospel tells us in his earthly ministry, you remember Peter, James, and John, they go up, they take a nap. When they wake up, he's radiating, a brighter than any launder they'd ever seen. And with Jesus, remember, there is Elijah and Moses. And according to the Gospel writers, Elijah and Moses are talking to Jesus and they're talking about the exodus, is the Greek word, that Jesus is about to finish. So the Old Testament exodus was just a shadow. A much greater exodus would take place at Calvary's Hill. And so divinely saved Christians become. Uh, regenerated, born again, but too many Christians, they stumble at the part of, Lord, what would you have me to do? In light of who you are and what you've done, my life is yours, where would you have me to go? And this is a profound part of our walk. Philip Yancey, a Christian author, he said it this way, too easily we expect God to do something for us when instead God wants to do it through us. We are willing participants. Can't steer a parked car. Two essential questions. Who are you, Lord? What would you want me to do? From what I can gather in Philippians chapter 3, Paul is ever learning in those two questions. Christians, we should ever be learning. God, who are you? Always growing in the grace and the knowledge. Always growing in the love. Trying to apprehend that which apprehended us. Being motivated, propelled by the, the conversion that took place in a moment. And the rest of our life, you and I are playing catch up through it. It ends in verse 7. You see there, the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, seeing no one. Then Saul arose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one, but they led him by the hand, brought him into Damascus, and he was three days without sight, neither ate nor 
drank. Come on up, worship team. I am going to, I know I'm a few minutes past, as the worship team comes up and we finish, can we please just briefly turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1? A few verses. It really brings us to a, a conclusion. Here's this man who's now blinded three days. Again, I'll say one more time, no eyesight, but a lot better insight. Blinded, but seeing clear than he'd ever seen. And then we have the rest of his story. You guys know the Apostle Paul. Profoundly used more than any other human being, I, I dare say, shy of Jesus Christ. But this one portion of his testimony in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says something that just blesses me, and I want to pass it on to you. Looking back on the conversion, looking back on the area of Scripture we just studied, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me, because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent man, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying, worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason, I obtained mercy that in me first... Jesus Christ might show all long-suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Understand, when he says, Jesus Christ found me faithful. We just read Acts chapter 9. Can we agree this man was breathing murder and threats? He was wreaking havoc of the church. He was a violent man, an injurious man. He couldn't have been going in a further direction. And yet he can, at the end of his life, say, Christ found me faithful. I mean, you and I look at that, we're like, faithful? Faithful in your disobedience and in your violence and in your rebellion? He goes, no, God counted me faithful. He enabled me instantaneously, called me into the ministry. And then he says in verse 15, he goes, and because of that, because of that transaction that took place, he's going to hold me up like a pattern. That's what our kids do at show and tell. You bring in something and you hold it up. He says, God's holding me up as a pattern to the rest of the world. God says, if I can save that man, I can save anybody. And that is what the world needs to hear right now. We look around the world right now, and as George said in the announcements, the world's gone crazy, hasn't it? But Christian, our life is no less of a miracle than what took place in Acts chapter 9. And God is still doing that today. And I believe if we live in such a way that we can actually with a, a, a humility say, God, what would you have me to do? In light of all that I've been forgiven, in light of the slate being clean, how can I live in such a way? We continue doing that, and we watch how contagious it becomes to those around us. You guys stand to your feet with me. Let me pray for Calvary Chapel, Miami. Father, as we close in song, I just I thank you for who you are. I thank you for the conversion of my soul, Lord, of my family. I think of the church family here. You have done a miracle in our lives. Help us to ever be grasping, to fully understand it more. Lord, that we might apprehend that which Christ apprehended us, that we'd be motivated by that grace and that gratitude. Help us to be effective in doing the work of an evangelist, telling people about this saving king. We pray, Lord, in our worship and in our fellowship, you would be praised. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, grace and peace to you all.